From Brooklyn, New York, I'm Adam Teeter. From Queens, New York, I'm Tim McCurdy. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. And before we get into the podcast, a word from today's sponsor, this podcast and Bubbly Week, which is occurring this week when this podcast is airing, and it's all about bubbles, and it's one of our favorite, week, favorite weeks of the year here at Vine Pair, is sponsored by Luminore by LaMarca, J Vineyards and Winery, and Otello Lambrusco. And with that... We're on to the pod. So we're going to talk about, you know, bubbly in a little bit. But before we jump into, you know, all things sparkling, um, Tim, you know, you're our guest host for this week, which is great to have you, uh, staff writer of Vine Pair. Um, you know, obviously, we've explained to you the rules of the game. Um, but what, <laughs> what, have, what have you been drinking recently? <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me on. So, yeah, what have I been drinking recently? I Besides guess, tea, and- obviously. Because yeah. I want to say this. I've noticed every British program I watch recently, there's a lot of tea consumption. And do you guys really like tea or is it just a ruse? Like, do you put it on for the tourists? Well, I'll say that's better than your comment you made to me the other day about dentists and British people. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I do, I, I like tea, but, you know, if, I, if I'm drinking it for the purposes we normally have hot drinks, right, to get going in the morning or whatever. I, I prefer a coffee, but if I need something to warm me up in the afternoon, I will go for an Earl Grey. Uh, but I haven't been drinking a lot of that recently. I guess to to return to your original question, <laughs> as my, my kind of 10 Instagram followers will know, I, I tend to drink a lot of martinis. And I, I've recently discovered a, a Japanese vermouth. What? It's, it's not actually like technically a vermouth because it's made with a sake base. And, oh. But it's called Bermuto, so B and starts with a B, double T. And I thought that is the perfect pairing for, you know, some of the range of incredible Japanese gins that are out there these days. So, yeah, I've been I've been using that for my kind of like Friday night martini and will probably add a little bit more vermouth than I typically go just because the flavor is incredible. I'll normally go like super dry, just a splash, but. Yeah, maybe even go up to uh, two to one. So wait, that's been my job. Where did you discover this this sake based vermouth? So this was actually um, a product I received as a sample and enjoyed, and it was sent to me as, as a gift by someone. So we were at, like doing a huge vermouth roundup and was you know reaching out to try tons of different sweet vermouths for a different story that I was writing about Negronis. And the uh, person that I was in contact with was like, well, you have to try this dry vermouth because they actually happen to know that I'm a big martini lover as well. So they sent that along and it's wonderful. And it's kind of hard to uh, glean the, the, the name of the producer from the bottle. There's not too much information on there, but if I get it, maybe we can uh, kind of add it to the show notes or whatever for the link. Or you all can go follow Tim on Instagram and we can make sure he posts a picture of the bottle if he hasn't already. Hey, that, yeah. that, that's what I was really aiming for there. You know, you've got to follow me now, <laughs> We're guys. Double <laughs> that follower count for you. We're going to go from 10 to 20. Seriously, yeah. Tim. Come on, man. <laughs> but it's, that but is... it's, it, it's an incredible, it's a, it's a really wonderful, you know, martini. And yeah, like I say, really highlights some of the amazing Japanese gins that are on offer these days too. So yeah, go out there and look for it. There can't be too many on the market. So if you find one online, it's probably the same one I'm drinking. Well, now I'm jealous, but that's fine. Um, Wasn't that the point of this whole th- this whole bit here, Adam? It's also not the first time I've been jealous of Tim, so it's okay. Uh, yeah. So, Zach, what about you? 
Uh, well, I guess uh, to me, the most the striking thing that I had this last week, uh, I taught a class about Rioja this past weekend and uh, opened the current vintage, uh, or I guess it's they've just switched vintages, but the 2007 uh, Reserva from Lopez de Heredia. I think we've talked about Lopez de Heredia on this podcast before, honestly. Uh, they're Vina Tondonia, which is one of their single vineyard Riojas. And I, I, two thoughts struck my mind. One is I, I just adore those wines. They're definitely... Uh, not the thing that I want all the time. Uh, I have to be in the right kind of mood and place for them to to work for me, whether it's the the reds or even the whites. Uh, but but the other thing I'd say is like it reminded me in doing it for this class and like brought back all these memories I had of of selling it as a sommelier and how like how much I had to fight with that wine in a restaurant setting because it really needs like four or five hours in a decanter before it really is enjoyable. And for me at home, that whatever that's fine. I'll open it and then come back to it. In, you know in the evening when I'm ready. Uh, and I actually encourage the people in my class to open it, you know, hours beforehand um, to open their bottles, but boy, it was a pain in the ass in restaurants and, and I love the wines and it's not meant as a knock on them, but it is uh, it was hard as a sommelier to like explain to people that like, well, really, if you want to enjoy this wine, you should have ordered it four hours ago. I'm sorry. Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I've only had that. I've only had their white like once or twice. I don't remember how long it was like decanted for. The white is a little bit more forgiving. The, the reds are just typically. Oh, you had the red. I thought you'd yeah, have the yeah, white. Yeah. Oh. No, I, I've had I have had both. Although I actually had, uh, but yeah, the the red is the one I had most uh, this other the other day, and and delicious, like I said, uh, with time to open. But yeah, it just it needs, you know, you got to plan ahead. Uh, it's like it, it it makes sense in this this past week of Thanksgiving where uh, you know all the all the food you prepare takes a long time to to. Uh, queue up so it's kind of like uh you know it's the wine equivalent of making a turkey or something well so can can you just explain to what would it be like if you hadn't given it time it's just incredibly tight and there's yeah like nothing there and maybe one day we'll have a conversation we'll have a we'll do a podcast topic about some of these like wine terms that are hard to define like tight but basically to me when i when i describe a wine that way what i would say is that the overwhelming sensation of the wines are the structural elements so the tannins and the acid it's kind of the equivalent experience you get sometimes if you have a white wine that's too cold um where sometimes all you taste is kind of the acidity in the wine and the the fruit profile and the aromatics are really um, muted because the wine is too cold uh with reds um Serving temperature can affect that, of course, but but it's more often just with wines like that that are aged for a very long time in barrel and then for a very long time in bottle, they kind of are they're so they just need that the time in a decanter or at least being open on your, you know, on your table or something, uh, to really uh fully start to express themselves. And so when you taste it when it's uh just freshly opened, you taste nothing but like really tart fruit and a lot of tannin and kind of a, a almost med- like aggressively medicinal quality. And then when you come back to it three, four, five hours later, uh, the fruit is a little bit more generous, although still quite sort of dry. And then um, you get much more of this sort of um, savory, but not off-putting notes that you get when it's, it could be really, really uh, had, has been just freshly opened. So, so more kind of like leathery uh, wood smoke kind of notes that I really enjoy, but take a little while to kind of come out of the wine when it's just been opened. Interesting. Interesting. What have you been drinking, Adam? Oh, gosh. A few things. Drinking a lot more wine lately, obviously, than than cocktails. On Saturday night, um, and and beer, because I love beer. I drink a really great uh, KCBC uh, beer, Kings County Brewing Collective, but I forget the name of it. Uh, it was like one of their, se- it was their seasonal this year, but like a, just a delicious, uh, you know, hazy IPA that was pretty tasty that I had this weekend. But then on Saturday night, I made fresh pasta with truffles, 
um, oh, and yeah. I opened a bottle of uh, Conio Rivera Barolo that was dope. Um, really, really, do- really, really good. Uh, it was actually one of the wines. I think it was our number one wine of the year two years ago uh, on the Vine Pair list. Uh, and it was just, you know, a beautiful bottle. And again, that's what the reason I was asking is because the same thing sort of happened with the Barolo. We, I popped it and let it sit for like 45 minutes in the decanter. And when we first drank it, it was all tannin still. Uh-huh. Um, and then, you know, like 30 minutes later, it just had completely opened. So I guess basically an hour and 15 minutes, 15 minutes sitting in the decanter. And then it was beautiful. Um, but it was, it was just crazy how that happens. Um, so yeah, so that was, that's basically what I've been drinking recently you know look at you guys men of the people popping out the decanters shut up tim <laughs> shut up tim usually usually well, did you invite tim on this podcast again adam because it's fun no, um actually, no, but actually i saw i saw that adam i think i think i saw you posting an, uh on instagram and i was like well yeah that's the that's the way to spend a saturday night you know no that was the second day. bottle ah, <laughs> remember okay. i texted you this you you messaged me on instagram and i was like yeah, I made a mistake. Like we're we're doing a Zoom with some people at ten at ten PM and it's only eight thirty. So I'm gonna pop another one and now that I've already had this bottle, I'm gonna have another bottle. Um and continue watching my football game. Which Brings I did. a whole new meaning to the to the term double decanting. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Oh my god. Yeah, totally. Tim with the fire today. I'm, Dude, I'm always the always the fire. It's the best. Yeah, but I it's funny because I really haven't I haven't had a lot of cocktails recently. Um, you know, I I love a martini. Tim has inspired me, but I haven't made one yet this season. Actually, like as it's gotten cooler, um, I think I need to. Maybe I need to do that like later this week. I don't know if I'll do it tonight. I mean, it's a great week for it. We're recording this obviously before Thanksgiving, and like, is there a better couple days to be drinking martinis at two p.m. than on Thursday and Friday of Thanksgiving week when you're with your in-laws? Oh, uh, you know, yeah, like fair enough. Well, you, I don't know. You might need you might need the martini. I'm not. <laughs> I, I'm sure Naomi's parents are lovely, lovely people. I like to think of like if New Year's Eve is the Super Bowl of drinking, then Thanksgiving is like the playoffs, right? You know, we're, we're leading up to Trump season. We're getting there. So, you know, midweek martini might be appropriate. Who knows? I agree. <laughs> I agree, Tim. Um, you know, Tim, speaking of seeing, I have one, another question for you uh, before we jump into the t- today's podcast. How's your storage unit doing? My storage unit is brilliant. I wanted to uh, come live from that, but. <laughs> this is maybe not a problem that all of our listeners have, but living in New York, having an incredibly small apartment and basically being confined to that apartment for, gosh, eight months now. Um, my girlfriend and I had the realization the other day of why don't we get a storage unit? And it's honestly a game changer. I got my wines in there that I want to age. You know, it's kind of temperature controlled. I say my wines that I want to age. There's like 12 bottles you know, no <laughs> illusion, right? But honestly, this is a game changer. If you live in New York, public storage, it's wonderful. And you get a great deal. I highly recommend it. Do you have a, do you have a promo code for us, Tim? <laughs> people save 10% off if they drop your name? 10 pound off with McCurdy Martini. <laughs> 10 pounds off? Oh my yeah, goodness. There you go. 10 pounds off. Okay, there you go. <laughs> so uh, it's actually funny that you mentioned that though, because I actually, my wife and I, despite re- we rent a house here in Seattle, but with a child, it became clear that with, with COVID and quarantine, it was not big enough. So we actually also rented a storage uh, unit a couple of months ago. And it has also been a j- game changer in our house because now my wife and I don't have to fight about how we're going to find room for anything, any new toy for our son, because we put all the old toys in storage. 
and yeah, I'm 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 team storage locker too. So I've got no storage yeah, my, locker. My, I'm fine. My girlfriend and I said, think of all the things that we can buy direct to storage. <laughs> it's brilliant. Buy direct to storage. <laughs> yeah, I can't. Okay, you two are you two are too ridiculous. Um, so let's jump into to to bubble, shall we? Um, absolutely. Always a fun time of year. Always a fun topic. This is you know one of the 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 you know my favorite weeks of content we do every year. Um, and it's really awesome that for the past three years it's been sponsored by. Luminori by Lamarca, J Vineyards and Winery, and now Atello Lambrusco. Um, but you know, it's it's a celebration of of all things bubbles. I I don't know, man. You know, I think I didn't drink as many bubbles. We've talked about that a bunch in early COVID, just because it didn't feel like uh, it was like a celebratory time. But I'm really ready to drink bubbles now, and uh, just of of all of all kinds. Like, do either of you have? Do, do either of you drink bubbles regularly? And if you do, do you have one that's a go-to or a kind of style that's a go-to? And don't say champagne, Zach. I know you're a song. <laughs> we don't need to tell like everyone else. Uh, I would say that I do drink champ- uh, sparkling wine a lot, including <laughs> champagne. Uh, my wife is a big fan, as am I, to be fair. I would say, though, that as far as go-tos, uh, it's been really interesting. That's been something that I think has changed a lot for me over the last couple of years. If you had asked me this question a, a few years ago, I think I would have said Cremant, and I would have just left it there. And I still we still drink a decent amount of Cremant. Um, I think, you know, for those who are unfamiliar, Cremant is um, – there's a, a range of different regional uh, Cremant appellations throughout France that refer to basically wines made in the traditional or champagne method but not in champagne itself. Um, and they can often be really, really good. They're not usually – aged as long as uh, champagnes, uh, certainly not as, as long as like vintage or tete cuvee champagnes, but even your standard champagne bottlings typically spend more time aging than uh, most Cremant. But they're very good. They're often very good. They're serious wines. Um, they're, they're taken very seriously by the producers in most cases. And they're obviously significantly more affordable in many cases than champagne. But but for me, actually, I, I surprisingly, perhaps to myself, have found myself actually gravitating towards drinking a lot more Prosecco than I used to. Um it started by by visiting the region a couple of years ago and and having some prosecco that was um, really made. Uh, I don't want to say more. It, let's say it was just a different category of prosecco than I was familiar with um, from just working as a sommelier and, and as a wine drinker here in the states. Uh, and fortunately, a lot of those wines have become more available in the U.S. over the last few years, or at least here in the Seattle market. And I find myself really enjoying a lot of the the sort of I guess what I would say is the balance that you find in Prosecco that is actually sometimes harder to find in a lot of sparkling wines um, because the Prosecco is typically not quite as acidic and typically has a little bit more residual sugar. And so it's a little bit more balanced unto itself, whereas sparkling wine, uh, especially Champagne and Cremant, is delicious and an awesome pairing with a lot of foods. But sometimes to me is actually if I just want to have a glass by itself, I actually I think I find myself more gravitating towards Prosecco. And I think that's something that that's been a broader trend, you know, in this country is that that people have realized that if they're just going to have a glass of something sparkling, I think more than ever before, that 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 thing is Prosecco. And and I I guess I've just caught up with the trend. Interesting. Tim? Yeah, I mean I so I definitely a lover of all sparkling wines i think it's probably up there with my my favorite styles are like go-to bottles it's it's something i definitely drink quite regularly um you know when when it's just a normal week probably not during the week but you know a normal weekend i will be looking for something in the store that's a little bit more budget friendly um like zach says I, i i do tend to find a lot of value in like cremant wines from france um, 
tons of great American sparklers, as our friend Keith Feathers likes to call them. Um, and and, Carver and, and only well. Keith, let's be clear. Yeah. No, I think he, I think he's on to something, people. I, he, I actually I think, think might be, but I think yeah. American Sparkler is a great name for sparkling wine from the U.S. No, I think I let's make it happen. <laughs> let's make it happen. <laughs> All right, we're making it happen. Yeah, I think Carver as well is a, is another style of sparkling wine that I think you know. If you know where to look and spend just a couple of bucks extra, I think you can find some amazing wines, you know, in there, aged on leaves that are just fantastic. Nice. I mean, it's interesting. I, yeah, I drink I, – I don't drink as much sparkling wine as I would like to, but I do think I've found myself drinking recently a lot more American sparkling wine. You know, like the the stuff from, for example, like Domingue Carneros – any of those kinds of producers like that are out in California. Um, I think that there's some people doing really interesting things. Also like uh, a lot of the Italian sparkling wine, I've either not just Prosecco, but you know, Franciacorta as well as uh, you know, the stuff coming from Alto Adige that are just really interesting as well. I think that, yeah, there, there's like, there's just a lot of delicious sparkling wine out there um, that also is more than just champagne. And I think the, re- the reason I'm saying more than just champagne is because for me, champagne is like, I would love to drink it all the time. I think it's absolutely delicious, but I just can't afford that. Yeah. You know, like for the champagnes that I enjoy, they're, you know, they're they're always well above 60 to 70 bucks a bottle, and it's very rare that I drink like reds or whites that I love that are above 60 to 70 bucks a bottle. So to justify like that in champagne all the time is very very difficult. So I don't do it. But, you know, there's there's bottles, you know, in the 20s and 30s that are from everywhere else that are, you know, equally delicious in, in the right moment. To your point there, Adam, I think as well with like domestic sparkling wine, you named Domaine Carneros. I'd say like another one of a kind of go-to for me as well. You've mentioned it on the podcast before, but Gruet, I think you get, you manage to capture that champagne flavor profile. Okay, some might argue that the nuance might not be there as like a $60 bottle of champagne, but you capture that overall flavor profile. You can also find those wines practically everywhere, which I think is a huge plus. Um, and they're, they're also, you know, like really, you know, budget friendly. Um, one of my favorite things to do in kind of the before times is we're calling it these days. So, you know, living in Queens, some people might be familiar with some of the neighborhoods here. Uh, there's a neighborhood close to me called Jackson Heights and they have the most amazing Momo trucks. So what I would typically do, pick up a chilled bottle of Gruet, go down there, kind of stick it in the sort of larger size of the brown bag and take along some cups and order some of those momos. And and that pairing for me is just one of the most incredible things. It's something I would normally do to kick off uh, Thanksgiving as well, but I'm not sure that's going to happen this, this year. But that is a pairing that, you know, we might get onto pairings today, but that's a pairing which isn't very classical, but I want to put that one out there and, and claim it for myself if I can. Oh, yeah. I, re- <laughs> I read about that you do that in a publication called Eater, I think. Um, uh, I think there was, well, a, there, yeah. there was an article <laughs> written about how you do that, but I don't. But I wasn't sure if it was you because it mentioned a husband, so I'm not sure. Uh, I'm well, not sure if it what was can you. I say? The quality of journalism or, or reporting these days, you know, <laughs> fact checking, not what it was. <laughs> this is great, though, because I actually think Tim points to a really important story that whether it's about 
the the American sparklers or or just sparkling wine more broadly, which is like one of the cool things that we've seen emerge, at least I've seen, I think, and and it's not exclusively the province of of America, but I think you've seen it here a lot is, is this interesting kind of approach to sparkling wine that that is, there are producers like like Gret that are making wines that are very much modeled intentionally after champagne um, in terms of the choice of varieties, the, the winemaking methodology. But you've also got producers who are working with almost every variety possible, whether it's Germanic varieties like Riesling and Gewürztraminer and Müller Thurgau and making sparkling wines from those or making sparkling wines from, um, you know, other aromatic white varieties like Muscat or, or Albarino even, um, and, and people making, you know, Petit Naturel or Petnat wines here. You know, there, there's this incredible range of 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 sparkling wines and in the you know this kind of dovetails with the conversation uh, Adam that you and I had um with Keith a couple weeks ago about sort of American wine and talking about you know some of the exciting places to look at but one of the one of the things that the US has is a lot of these areas that that are newer wine producing regions that might not be quite suitable for big red wine production. They're cooler, they're wetter, they're they're at more altitude, but they make for amazing potential spots for sparkling wine. And so this idea of expanding the the idea of what sparkling wine means beyond the sort of champagne paradigm um, is really exciting to me. And and I think those food pairings um, like like the one that Tim discussed with the Momo or or just you know the incredible range of cuisines uh, that that we see in this country. I mean that is where sparkling wine shines. It, it, you know besides just as a drink by itself, as as I described at the beginning, but but as this incredible pairing tool because you know sparkling wine itself is so diverse and can work with so many different flavors. And so I found you know incredible pairings at home with you know takeout Indian food and some interesting like um, pet nat Limburger from here in Washington. Like that was a weird ass pairing, but I thought it really worked pretty well, especially with things like like panini cheese that are kind of um you know that 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 kind of work with a lot of different flavors so uh, yeah i mean uh, there's just the possibility space for for those of us who are who are interested in drinking sparkling wine is really broad and and having a broader canvas of wines to work with is is also super exciting absolutely and i think i think the thing that you're picking up on that is really cool is just how how delicious these wines are with a range of cuisines and how well they go with a range of cuisines i think a lot of people don't think about that that often right like i think it's gotten you know Again, movie we can blame movies and popular culture and things like for this, but that you know that champagne's kind of like or sparkling wine in general, but you know it's all sort of begun with champagne is this like celebratory drink, right? So you pop it at the beginning of a meal to cheers everyone. You know, it's like it's a, it's the wedding drink when you know when the bride and groom first come on and there's the toast or whatever. But th- there's a lot more to these kinds of wines and that there's they're very complex. They have a lot of different you know um, flavors and and aromas than other wines do that pair really well with like even things like steak. Uh, yeah. You know, and roast chicken and stuff that's just delicious. You might be like, oh, you know, I'm, I was feeling a red tonight. Well, actually, like you can do just a really delicious sparkling wine with lots of like yeasty notes and and, sa- and a savory quality that makes it the perfect pairing for those kinds of um those kinds of things. And I think like yeah, you're right. Like the the amount of fun that people are having with sparkling wine now is really interesting. I think that's you know that's something that we've even seen you know in the sort of reemergence of Lambrusco, right? Like this this wine that got a really, really terrible rap in the 70s and 80s because the stuff coming over was, you know, from Italy was just sickly sweet. But, you know, it's a it's a wine that comes from the same region as like, you know, Parmesan cheese and prosciutto, right? And it's like, it's made to go with those wines when it's done really well. And it can be delicious and dry and easy to consume, obviously, because it's often lower alcohol, but then also just like does beautifully with pizzas and does, you know, awesome with red meats and things like that and and spice and 
that that's been really fun to watch people sort of discover that because there it's a great wine to have in your repertoire along with you know whites and reds lambrusco is like the perfect wine for one of the few truly uh, american foods and that's barbecue oh and- totally and especially, you know, I think I think we, we have had a, a, I guess we call it a, a spirited conversation about barbecue and what exactly that word means uh, on this podcast. There is only ago. one way. There's only one way the word people can agree. people can go back and listen to the the barbecue wine podcast uh, that we did in, over the summer to uh, to get more detail. I'm not going to reiterate everything that was said there, but I do think it's important to point out that Lambrusco <laughs> works really really well with with. Uh, almost any variety of barbecue you care to call barbecue and also is one of my absolute favorite pairings for uh, a dish that I don't personally have very often because it's not really what I do, but, but a very classic uh, dish in, in December, which is like a Christmas ham. Um, because as Adam mentioned, Lambrusco is from Emilia Romagna, which is the salted pork capital of the world. Yeah. And so if you're going to have salty pork, you should have Lambrusco. It makes sense. It makes sense. And it is really like the capital of the world. Like I, I cannot, <laughs> I cannot overemphasize how much uh, cured pork I had in my couple of days in Emilia Romagna. It was obscene. isn't even an isn't even the right word. It was something beyond obscene. If any I would of you like out there to have go a, to Emilia Romagna, well, it, it's very unpicturesque. Um, it is no. I just flat. want I just want to go there for the salted pork. <laughs> oh, that's the it, it salted pork, and actually surprisingly, also, and this is a thing that comes up in Italy weirdly, has some of the best bread in Italy, which like. Italian bread is really hit or miss. Like there are parts totally of totally hit or miss. Just absolutely dreadful bread. Uh, but Emilia Romagna's bread is good. Yeah. Um, I, Tim, I have a question for you because I, I we were talking about uh, you know, the sort of the the culture and and the the context in which people drink sparkling wine here. And and I think uh, you know Adam made a, a dig about tea earlier, or at least <laughs> uh, fainted at it. But but I was going to say that you know I think there's a perception in this country, right or wrong, that the Brits are more sophisticated when it comes to wine than than Americans traditionally. Is is the role of sparkling wine in England you know functionally different than what it is here? Is that is that something that's changed or what's it what's it classically like there or, or maybe in the in the modern day? Uh, yeah, that's a that's a great question, and I think you know the the, the kind of simple answer is that. In my experience, I don't think the British culture is any way more sophisticated when it comes to wine or <laughs> any other type of drinking. But uh, <laughs> I should add the caveat that I also grew up in Scotland as well. So, you know, that's a whole different story. Uh, just just search for Buckfast and read about that. And, you know, if you're not familiar with it, you know, that will reveal some things about us as a nation. Um, but So I would say that sparkling wine I don't think it does have that kind of connotation as only being for celebrations. It's definitely present at the, the celebrations. You know, I any kind of occasion I can remember growing up, um, you know, getting together as a family, there would always be champagne there. Um, but, but I'd say more in recent years, and this is even before I sort of came up drinking age, I remember growing up and and kava being so huge in the UK and and really just this maybe there was some kind of breakout moment where where we were kind of told as a nation you know this is like champagne but it's it's a lot cheaper and then at some point there was a shift I want to say that it was probably about 12 years ago maybe a little bit longer where kava changed to prosecco yeah and you know through the through the lens of you know is sparkling wine only for celebration i would say absolutely not especially for the majority of the nation i, I it, it would stun me 
if Prosecco wasn't the best-selling wine in the UK, you know, maybe Rosé or, or, or maybe, you know, something like Malbec might challenge it. But Prosecco is, it is just so popular and it's everywhere. And it's, it's definitely not like the, the, the celebration wine. It's, it's the wine for every day. It's the wine when, you know, kind of like my mum gets together with her friends or you go out to brunch with friends or, or, you know, I guess all the occasions that we have it here as well. But it just always seems to be on the table. It seemed to happen in in the UK and in the US around the same time for some reason, like that it just it just popped, like it just you know everyone all of a sudden was like not only were they, I mean obviously Prosecco was here for longer, but it feels like all of a sudden people were aware of it, and they and they knew it by name. And I think what's become really interesting now we're getting into onto the business side is that. Yeah, I mean, like during COVID, right? While champagne sales slumped, Prosecco, you know, Prosecco interest in sales continued to stay fairly high, and people were asking for Prosecco by name, right? So where they might ask, where they might call an American sparkler still champagne, they know now to call Prosecco Prosecco, um, and it really is like a, it's it's become this thing that is this just massive behemoth that people recognize as like the sparkling wine you can drink all the time. Um, and that, yes, I mean, if you want to toast with it, great. But also if you just want it on a Tuesday night with, you know, takeout and then you want to watch Netflix, it's it's a great wine to have. And it's just become, you know, it's just been everywhere. And and that I think has been really interesting. And the only thing I wonder about with Prosecco is like how much more can it grow because it's just grown so much, but it doesn't really show a ton of signs of, of slowing. So, you know, th- there definitely is still opportunity. Adam, I have a question for you and for Tim, of course, too, mm-hmm. if, he, if he has thought on this. So, you know, you mentioned the the sort of business side of it and the growth of Prosecco and, and yeah. the fact that it's now a category that people recognize sort of distinct from champagne and then I guess sparkling wine more broadly. But what I wonder is the thing I haven't seen a lot of, I've seen a little bit of it, but not a lot of it is producers in the United States or other parts of the world really trying to go after Prosecco's market share directly. So you see a lot of people pushing other kinds of traditional method, fully sparkling wines as a, a as an alternative. Oh, you know, whether it's cava, whether it's um, you know uh, other Italian sparkling wines, whether it's you know domestics, etc. But you don't see people saying, "Hey, we're going to make a, try and make a wine that sort of flavor profile wise is similar to prosecco." Now, maybe that's because you know no one else is growing Glera, and so they're not going to be able to make something that tastes exactly like it because they're not growing the grape. But I think a lot of it is maybe that people are, for whatever reason you know, the, the, the success of Prosecco is still kind of doesn't really, no one has an explanation in the wine world. No one really understands it. They don't, or they don't know whether to credit it to, um, the style of wine itself or just it's a relative, um, affordability and the fact that I guess the name resonates with people. Like, I don't know, it's easy for people to pronounce and remember like that stuff matters too. I I don't know. Do either of you have a read on, on why you're not seeing more people making sort of semi sparkling, uh, you know, tank method sparkling wines and trying to push them as Prosecco alternatives. So, I mean, I do, I think, um, I think that sparkling wine at the end of the day uh, is much, is much more for, for the majority of consumers, right? So not, um, not like Psalms, right? But I think for the majority of consumers, sparkling wine is a lifestyle beverage. It's much more similar to rosé than it is to other wines, right? And so when you're talking about a lifestyle beverage, you're talking about what else does that wine represent besides, um, you know, quality price, you know, quality price ratio, the grape it's made from, whatever. Prosecco represents to most American consumers now a posh Italian lifestyle. 
it rep it, it represents this 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 idea of Italy and Milan and you know and what's really funny is and Venice and it's it's it like it, it represents everything. And I remember talking to a few French Accorta producers about this last year at a conference. And they're like, "But we are closer to Milan." I'm like, "That's fine." <laughs> But that, you know, we're, we're Americans. We don't know where Omaha is compared to where, you know, where New Orleans is. Like we, we don't, it, we, we have a very bit, you know, weird idea about where things are in other countries. And so like, wait, but isn't, of course, Prosecco is close to Milan and maybe Rome too. It just represents Italy as a whole. And in the same way that champagne to people represents this posh French lifestyle, um, which is why I think Cremant could never really un- unseat that in most Americans' minds and have them aware of it, right? Because Champagne already represents that to them, right? So, you know, oh, this is this is the the budget level Champagne from France. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in the lifestyle of you know high end French culture and fashion and food. That Champagne um, again, like I don't know right now what that could be for Cava. Um, you know, I mean. Again, like, can you tie that to Barcelona? It's super close to Barcelona, but no one's done that yet, right? Where they've, you know, no one's really been able to figure out how to make you connect the culture of that sparkling wine to that to that lifestyle. Because again, I think we're we're still as Americans kind of unsure of what Barcelona is as a as a lifestyle place. Whereas you know, Italy and France, we really know it's like fashion and food and all the things that we love and. Um, and again, that's, that's why I also think you don't see American producers trying to, to copy it because it's, it's hard. Like what, what are you copying? Yes, you can copy yeah. like potentially the flavor profile and the, and the price, but you can't copy all the other things that it says about you. And I think sparkling wine is a, is a really, is truly a product where like Americans think a lot about what it says about them in the same way I, we think about like the fashion brands we wear or the kinds of, furniture we choose to have in our homes or whatever like what's the initial connection the brand is person uh type connection that people make to say oh well they they they're they drink these brands they must be this kind of person and so it's it's very hard to compete against and like it's it's interesting to me that it took the italians this long to to make it click but they did and now i think it's just very strong that's fascinating, Adam. I would have, I would, I know we've talked about that context or that idea in the context of champagne specifically as sort of a, a luxury brand item, but it had never occurred to me that that's just as true in a different way uh, for Prosecco. That's, that's super fascinating. Yeah, I think you, you both make amazing or raise really great points there about, you know, sort of sparkling wine in general. And I, and I guess certain sparkling wines becoming brands within themselves, right? Like champagne, Prosecco. Um, maybe Cava to a lesser extent, but I, I, I don't feel like there are many others in the world, right? Like Corpinat, that's never really no. going to break <laughs> out. Or, you know, French Accorta, sorry, guys, I don't think it ever is either. Um, but looking at the kind of business perspective, Zach, I think I think there's another interesting aspect here um, that, that someone mentioned to me recently. I can't remember who I was speaking with. And they were talking about the fact that you know, it was probably a very good idea that in, in, you know, I think it's as of late 2000s, um, Prosecco, the the Glera grape was known as Prosecco, right? And then it was changed so that, in you know, when grown within Europe, it needs to be called Glera now. And I think that was a very savvy decision to protect the Prosecco brand, right? Because otherwise, what could happen, you could have all these different producers in other countries, where maybe they could make wine for cheaper and even sort of undercut the price of Prosecco. 
use that grape and use it on the labels and then that could create all kinds of problems for the Italians so I think that's an interesting thing to kind of explore a little bit from the from the business side of things I don't know I think I think the other thing too is like with the American styles um you know it they are for whatever reason they are just kind of trying very hard to be the you know either the champagne equivalent or be so obvious that they're not that you really haven't seen like all I've ever seen in, in an American sparkling wine or in the majority of them uh, and I'm looking at a few on my on on the floor of of the room I'm in right now they kind of copy the look of champagne do you know I mean like the label everything and you kind of just like oh so this is the champagne alternative and like I'm all, I always wonder like are they are they doing this in case you know the consumer just doesn't realize this isn't champagne or um you know is this really what they're going for or then they're like very modern right very like ultra modern looking labels and things like that which i also don't think totally works but again it just becomes it comes to that connection right like what like i think if you had if you had a if you had a sparkling wine region that was really close to new york or really close to maybe la or something else that we think of as being super posh maybe you could have that like you know that tie into fashion and that tie into you know culture that would make it you know be a much stronger luxury product but you don't and with with champagne or with you know sparkling with prosecco you you have that and you look at how these how these packages are designed for both of those kinds of skews and for the most part they evoke other luxury brands i mean you know you look at um you know like luminor and uh, La Marca and it's a, that, that blue, which is beautiful on the bottle also definitely, you know, nods to Tiffany's, um, yeah. you know, you know, it, it definitely does. Like that's another very well, we know that blue, you look at the Mianetto bottle and it nods to Vogue Clicquot. Um, you know, you look at a lot of these different well-known brands on both the Prosecco and, uh, champagne market. And I think they just do a much better job than sparkling wine around the rest of the, the world at positioning themselves as what consume, most consumers consider them to be, which is luxury products. And I think that's maybe a good uh, – uh, the last point I want to make because it kind of ties all those things together in some sense to me is is that you know one thing that would I would encourage our listeners to think about is that Prosecco, Champagne, even Cremant, Cava, et cetera, you know, these are only a, a slice of what's possible in the sort of sparkling wine realm. And and I think that one of the encouraging things for me, as I mentioned before, is that producers and importers and distributors are starting to see the value in having a really wide breadth of sparkling wine options for people, whether that now includes things like Lambrusco, whether that includes Petnat, whether that includes um, some other kinds of interesting, uh, whether it's you know the, the varieties, the, the methodology, whatever. Uh, you know, sparkling wine is a really diverse category and it's growing more diverse all the time. And while the classics and the tentpole styles and 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 icons are, are still delicious and worth investing in and, and worth checking out, um, I do think that, you know, uh, one thing that will be exciting in, in bubbly weeks to come, hopefully, is discussing, you know, the, the incredible uh, possibility space that's still out there that we're just starting to kind of explore as as a broader wine drinking community. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I hope everyone has a wonderful bubbly week and you drink lots of sparkling wine. Uh, I know I plan to. Uh, Tim, thanks for joining us as this week's guest host. Always a pleasure to have you, sir. Always a pleasure to be here. Thank you both for having me. Yeah, man. I mean, I don't want to keep you away from your tea, so we're going to let you go. <laughs> um, I'm sure you have. A, I'm sure you have a hot pot going, a little bit of a uh, you know biscuits as well. 
Uh, everyone, thanks for listening. Leave us a, a, a like, comment, review on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get podcasts. It helps everyone discover the show. Zach, I'll talk to you next week, man. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you enjoy listening to us every week, please leave us a review or rating on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced by myself and Zach Jabal. It is also mixed and edited by him. Yeah, Zach, we know you do a lot. I'd also like to thank the entire Vine Pair team, including my co-founder, Josh, and our associate editor, Kat Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week.